Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Well, hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben. This is episode 485 of the podcast for September 20th, 2023. Our guest today is Erica Lee Garcia. You're going to learn more about her in a minute, but we have a great conversation here today. We talk about among other things, her time running a suggestion program for two and a half years, her lessons learned from that, her shift to mining, not just a new company, but a new industry. Um, we're going to talk about the journey to starting her own business in um, 2011. So um, there's a lot to talk about here today. Erica is a problem solver and a leader and a business owner now. So I'm excited to have her here on the podcast. To learn more about her, um, all of her work, links to her website and more, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 485. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Erica Lee Garcia. She is, she does a lot of things. She is uh, the founder and managing partner of Onward Business Mechanics, she is the chair of the board of directors for an organization called Engineers of Tomorrow, and she's the lead of the Canadian chapter of Artemis Project. Erica has a bachelor's in materials and metallurgical engineering from Queen's University. She's joining us from Ontario, Canada. So Erica, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Mark. Yeah, well, it's great. Great to have you here. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today from from your career and think of, you know we'll start off and and, and hear different pieces of, of your progression um starting off though with the question I, I tend to ask people though, to get things rolling what's your lean origin story like where why how did you get into all of this oh love that question thank you um it started with a broken furnace belt so I was working as a manufacturing engineer at the time. I had just graduated. And honestly, my confidence was pretty much as low as it could be. I had gotten my butt kicked academically in engineering. Um, I really enjoyed the social aspects. And I really hoped at some point that I was going to be able to use my analytical skills for good, just to help the world. That was kind of my, my rough picture when I signed up for engineering. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. You know, I was working in this automotive factory. We were making these little gyroters that go inside the water pump for cars. And I was so excited to be out in the world. And I really wasn't sure if I'd found the place for me. Lo and behold, the furnace belts in the sintering furnace, it was a powder metal facility, broke one night and they kept breaking. And it happened every other day for a few weeks. And as you can imagine, every time those sintering furnaces they're about 90 feet long. And every time the furnace belt breaks, you lose everything that's inside. And you have to take the uh, temperature down from 400 degrees Fahrenheit down to nothing. And you have to start all over again, basically patching the belt. And this is very stressful for the people that work there. And it's bad for the business side of things as well. We were about to get uh, some serious containment uh, penalties slapped on us by our by our customer. And so I was a junior eager beaver uh, engineer ready to help out. And we started collecting data. We started collecting samples of the furnace belt, which was basically a whole bunch of little metal links like this. And we took some uh, samples of the cross section, got to use a little bit of my metallurgical knowledge to figure out, you know, how what percentage of the cross section was degraded. Turned out that was the KPI that we needed to crack the case. And we were able to change up the loading pattern and change up the atmosphere inside the furnace to make the belt stop breaking. And I got to say, I was hooked. It was so exciting to get to be part of that team, to get to collect the data, think strategically about it, and, and come up with a solution that actually made people's lives better in the very immediate term. It was exactly what I was hoping for, uh, like I said, when I signed up for engineering. So fast forward from there, I had the opportunity to put my hand up to get a Six Sigma black belt. I did it. I did the work. It was, uh, again, I wasn't sure I was going to make it, um, but it really, you know, kind of culminated in um, a, cross, a cross-functional effort. You know, it wasn't something I did on my own. I was able to work with uh, the mechanic, 
with the supply chain guy, with the uh, electrician, um, the quality people, myself, you know, everyone was kind of looking at me and I'm the youngest and least experienced person in the room. And I still had a lot of value to give because I was the one that knew how to take those statistical tools and, and use them to crack the case. So I guess I love being a detective is kind of what I discovered. <laughs> sure. um, I always knew I was interested in solving physical problems. Like I'm I'm of the vintage where we had rabbit ears on the top of the TV. Yeah. I grew up in the country and I was always the one that was able to fix the fix the TV reception. And uh, I think there were only about three or four channels back then, but I could <laughs> dial it in, you know, and yeah. I see what I was doing back then was exactly what I ended up doing as a grown-up, which was figuring out of all the the variables in this room, what are the the critical few that are going to lead to the positive output that I want to see. So I I just feel so lucky, frankly, that I had the opportunity to try that. I think a lot of people that come into engineering, maybe women and minorities more so than others that don't necessarily have that automatic sense of belonging in engineering, um, don't always get that chance to prove themselves and, and, and get an assignment that's just the right amount of a challenge, right? It's not so hard that it shuts you down, but it's enough that it makes you grow and helps you thrive. And I talk about it sometimes as it's like being on a surfboard. Eventually you start to feel like you belong above the waves <laughs> and it starts to be fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's as far as uh, my origin was. I think I was pretty hooked by the time I got my black belt. I, I was pretty much convinced of my value to myself. And I was able to sort of uh, get out there and do some jobs first in manufacturing, then in mining, uh, later on starting my own business where I'm just like, this is it, this is my jam. Solving incremental problems, uh, you know, managing change. It's it's so much fun. Uh, yeah. As yeah. you can tell, I get pretty excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, so you, you you told us about that problem solving challenge, and and you know, there, I'm sure there were technical aspects and and of of um, looking at the parts, looking at the uh, the belts and the process. Was, was that how, how much of that was? Would, would you say engineering problem solving or being at an auto supplier? What was to what degree a lean culture or you know was was Toyota a customer? Were they an influence? How would you describe the environment that you were working? Right. Yeah. At that point, I mean, that organization wasn't really embracing lean or improvement culture or anything. It was really a matter of necessity to keep us from getting getting heavily penalized by our customer. And um, it was an engineer. I'll never forget him. Andrew uh, was the one who led the efforts and sort of organized us all to say, hey, let's focus in on this. Uh, degradation of the belt and let's take samples and let's follow up. Um, and I think, I mean, engineering at the end of it is analysis and execution, right? You, if it's just analysis, if it's just knowledge, that's science, right? That's that's insight, uh, taking action on it, getting the people um, involved, getting the physical realities to, to line up the logistics, all of it. Um, I think that all of that is engineering. I think that's actually what makes our jobs so much fun is that it's the intersection of those technical or sort of physical realities and the way that humans are in the world. In this increasingly complex world, there are so many different problems we can solve, right? So this was actually just a, a taste that was a little bit out of, um, it was out of sync with the overall environment. I didn't grow up in a mecca of lean or anything like that. I've actually never had that um, experience per se. When I look at my career, I've always been the one trying to create that change and trying to create buy-in for that improvement culture from my own specific area of influence. Um, and I, I used to feel a little bit insecure about that, like, oh, I've never, I've never led change. I've never been, you know, a, a manager or a vice president or anything because I went out on my own as an entrepreneur. Um, but I had someone say to me recently, you know, you're among the minority that can lead without that title that can make change happen. And, you know, I, I, I love the, the scorekeeping, I guess everybody does, right. If you're a sports fan or a lean person, um, I totaled out, I gave a talk a couple summers ago about the difference between lean and six Sigma. I get the question a lot and I totaled up all of the projects that I've either led myself or I've been a part of supporting someone else to do, 
Um, and it's a total of $364 million of value creation. So I'm like, mm. that's, that's pretty good. I can feel pretty good about the contribution that I'm making and uh, excited to see where the next two or three or 500 million comes from. Yeah. Um, so we'll come back and you know, I want to hear about the business that you started, the work you do now. But as we kind of you know go back through more of that progression, um, I, I was going to ask you about Six Sigma. Was that within the context of the auto supplier when you had that opportunity? Tell us a little bit more about, was it their sponsorship or was it your initiative to say, well, hey, I want to go do this? Was that something they were embracing as a, as a company? Correct. Yeah, it was very much what they were implementing at the time. And I mean, thank goodness, I don't think I would have voluntarily signed up to do more statistics at the time. I was quite turned off by statistics. I thought it was tedious and pretty boring. And uh, once I got the opportunity to learn it in this context, though, where we do a, a week of training and then a month of application, week of training, month of application. Um, again, I think I was one of the youngest. And I just loved it. I love the opportunity to go out and it's almost like being a double agent, you know, because I'm doing my regular manufacturing engineering job. I was running the suggestion program at the plant I was working at at the time as well. And then I had this change mission, right? I had this other thing that I was doing and I had to get people on board with it and I had to collect data and I had to corral people that didn't work for me, right? But I was bringing them together, usually bribing them with donuts to get them to my meetings and uh, and get things done, right? Now, I was the one leading that, that sort of detective um, mission. And it was, yeah, it was very much of the company's doing. Um, and I didn't really know. Again, I, I think that was... Uh, a little bit of my my confidence, my bravado that I had fallen into by that point was just to say, "Yep, I got this. I want to do it." Um, and and it was I wasn't sure if it was going to happen, but I did end up getting the two projects complete for my black belt. And it was uh, interesting because we did one on an assembly line um, was to do with the, the push press, and we did another one on the the washer that was taking the chips out of the machined housings. Um, we're making water pumps for cars at that point. And uh, it was it was really inspiring to see how you can take things that honestly felt pretty natural to me. Like, of, of, of course, you're going to have to change up the X's to test out which one is the correct Y um, and and use that to make a major impact on the business. It was it was really neat to see how, hey, this is actually something not everybody knows how to do. And I can I can help open doors for other people, too. So you you've shared a little bit around you know some of this um, you know journey through two words come to mind like gaining confident competence gaining confidence mm. in your work um, how much of that like were, were there particular role models or mentors for you um, if so was it a woman or did you figure out did you have to figure out your own path by doing things and and getting better at it. Yeah. I mean, do you mean while I was a manufacturing engineer doing my yeah. Six Sigma stuff or yeah. Yeah, dur during during that phase where you said, you know, it sounded like early on, um, you know, you, you said you weren't mm. sure if this was gonna work out and it started working out, you know, or yeah, that tipping point. Yeah. Um I yeah, I mean I had the the master black belt that I was reporting into at the time and just loved the way that he had that nitty-gritty skill set you know, right down to the the statistical tests we were learning about, right up to the multi-million dollar business case for the company as a whole. And I think I really loved how he could pull together both those pieces because that turned out to be something that I really liked too. Um, one of my strengths, finder strengths is connectedness. Like I really love seeing that big picture and how it all fits together. And the business case, uh, you know, the, the, the money outcomes, the 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 nitty gritty technical part of it and also the people side like that all has to fit together and be dialed in in order to be successful so um yeah who else were was a role model i don't think there were any women on the scene at that point i think um i i hear a lot you know you can't be what you can't see and i think absolutely you can it it's just you have to go your own way and not everyone is as as stubborn as I am, maybe to do that. And maybe that's why we see some of the underrepresentation that we do these days. And I think it's great that we're starting to see, you know, more and more change leaders, um, more and more women in engineering, 
Um, Women in Mining is a group that I'm paying attention to now as well. And it's uh, it was it was the love of what's going to happen next. I just wanted to see like I just got curious. I got hooked in and my curiosity kind of overrode my self-doubt until we actually started to get somewhere. And I'm I'm convinced to this day that that formula will work for other people. If it worked for me, I think it can work for others. And if, you know, I, I talk to some of my clients now and say, if you can get people just curious enough, just get them hooked, you know, like the next episode on Netflix, they want to know what's going to happen with next week's data um, or getting, you know, getting to the next level on a video game. My gosh, our uh, our dopamine receptors are so happy, right? When we have the opportunity to tune in for another another chapter of something. So I I really think there's something special in the game of change, whether it's lean or Six Sigma, operational excellence, continuous improvement, all of these different flavors, whatever you're doing just to keep people interested um, and and get them hooked on change. That's that's such a free source of energy within companies that I think a lot lot are not tapping into. Yeah. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier running a suggestion program. Like that's one of those things that a company that can either go really well, um, whatever label we give it, continuous improvement or a suggestion program. And then there are workplaces where the suggestion program is illustrated, represented by that box that sits on the Mm -hmm. wall that people aren't really putting anything into. And if they do put something in there, it sits forever um, before being looked at. But like what what did you learn about change you know regardless of of how that suggestion program was 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 working in that environment yeah i mean one of the lessons was definitely be careful what you wish for be careful what you ask for if yeah. you put the box on the wall <laughs> and you know i'm i'm of the vintage where doing an online suggestion system was quite innovative at the time so we had that and the box two mode two modes of entry here and it was launched and we got, I think, 150 suggestions within a couple of weeks from 400 people yeah. on that plant that, at that that's time. A good, that's a good problem to have. It uh, Yes. And it was a challenging problem yeah. because to then have, basically, you need a process. Obviously, you need the infrastructure to process those suggestions. So that's when I ended up coming in at that point. When we had a backlog, we had a little bit of a deficit to overcome because people were starting to get a little bit Where's my response? You told me you wanted my ideas. Now what? You know, that can feel very personal to people, right? Right. So I had a little bit of a comeback to make there. And um, happy to say we got all of them processed. We caught up and we were able to really get into a sweet spot over the course of, I guess, how long did I run the suggestion program? I guess it was about two and a half years. We were able by the end of it to get up to a point where people's ideas were generating value. And I I know that's um, maybe common knowledge to someone that's grown up in a Toyota environment or something, but it was kind of an aha to me that it's not even necessarily about the ideas. Sometimes it's just about having people be heard and be appreciated. And if you come back to them, you know, I'd sometimes come in on the midnight shift to talk to people that had submitted an idea and say, okay, thank you. You know, thank you for you know they'd have a diagram on there, three or four uh, pages of scrawled writing, and I'd say, look. Here's why this particular idea would not be possible to implement. However, thank you for the suggestion. You still get points for participating. They go back sometimes and they refine their idea and they do it again. Or they just are happy that I came to see them and thank them for their idea. So I think that was, I assumed that we would be failing if we couldn't implement everything. And what I found was there was actually a lot of success just in the process of the conversation in giving people that that appreciation, we're we're listening to you. And you know, a, a general manager that I worked for at the time, I'll never forget. He was this very well dressed Austrian man, and he stood in front of four hundred. Well, wouldn't have been all four hundred of us, but stood in front of many of us in the cafeteria one day, and he said, "You know what? No one is more important than anybody else. We all just have different responsibilities." And something in me just really sang. To that, you know, I'm like, yes, that is what I believe too. I believe everyone has value. We all have intelligence. We all have things to bring to the table. And even if there are people that don't have a lot of structural power or don't have a lot of 
um, experience working in Canada or working in the States or wherever they happen to be at that point, um, they, they still have things to contribute. There's the democracy of a good idea. And I love how systems like, you know, it doesn't matter really if it's a suggestion program, continuous improvement teams, um, improvement circles, these are all ways to bring people's insights in and help them um, participate, feel valued and have their voices heard, whether they're at the top, so to speak, or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's all so important. You make a lot of great points there. And you know, I think the one piece all vouch for and emphasize is, yeah, you, you have to close the loop. You have to oh, yeah. keep, <clears throat> keep people informed, not just at the end when there's some sort of decision or action or resolution. But, you know, this is where I think, oh, forget the suggestion box, you know, whether it's a bulletin board or whether it's a technology, I mean, I'm wearing my Kinexus uh, polo shirt today. I'll think a plug Kinexus is one of those technologies where you keep people in the loop. You provide transparency and visibility that a suggestion box process, you know, never, never provided. And, and people might not like hearing no, but I think you touched on it. Like you either have to explain why and follow it up with, well, okay, well, what else could we try? Like to me, that's a difference. That's one of the key differences between kind of the old dusty, literally dusty suggestion box system and a healthy continuous improvement or Kaizen culture. Like we're driven to solve the problem, not just say yes or no to the suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a very concrete example of switching from an either or mentality to a yes and mentality. And that that's just, it, it opens up so many more possibilities. For sure. So um, speaking of other possibilities, so you made a shift from manufacturing into mining. I'm curious, you know, <laughs> what, what prompted that? What did you find there in terms of the environment, the readiness for lean or continuous improvement or Six Sigma? Yeah. Well, I, I guess from a personal decision-making point, it was, it wasn't so much um, a strategic decision. I know some people are very like, I have a five-year plan and I have it all mapped out kind of thing. Um, for me, it was more, you know, I'd applied to become the leader of the manufacturing engineering group and I didn't get it. And I wasn't sure what more, you know, what other growth or development opportunities existed there for me. I stopped seeing down the road, I guess, and I could only see a little bit um, in front of me in the manufacturing facility. And I ran into a friend of a friend who said, look, you got your black belt, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, there's this mining company. They're looking to set up a, an improvement program. There's a bunch of us ex-automotive people sitting inside the company. And it's kind of, you know, you might be a fit. See what you think. And I decided to apply um, again, with the massive imposter syndrome, because I, you know, I was going to go work on in this fancy big company at the head office downtown, everyone's wearing suits. And, you know, I got my, I got my steel toe boots on and I was, I think, still wearing my, my girl guide uniform pants, you know, as my manufacturing uniform. So I had some, uh, some up leveling to do on a personal confidence level again, um, once I got there, though, I found everyone so open-minded and so supportive, and there was opportunity to travel, and there were, it, it was just kind of, um, how would I say, there was low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the manufacturing organization I'd been working in had been at the improvement game for a while. So to find a $150,000 project or a $75,000 project uh, $75,000 a year project was a big deal. And we moved over to this company that was just setting up some improvement uh, standards and processes and tools for the first time. Um, and it was, it was so much fun. It was, it was, again, there was just uh, opportunity all over the place. We faced a bit of a cultural challenge in getting the mining people to see, you know, to, to not do that. Well, it wasn't built here, so we don't want it kind of a thing. Maybe healthcare did a bit of that pushback as well in the early days. Um, and and really, we we had to just work with them and be very patient around saying, well, okay, so tell us what are what are your challenges? What are you looking at now? And in the end, we developed this sort of four piece framework that I kind of use to this day around have you identified what your challenges are? 
have you captured those challenges, closed the gap between, you know, potential per- performance and, and current performance? And then have you have you sustained, have you really locked it down so it's going to stay there even when you turn your back? And then have you scaled it across your organization? And this particular company at the time, it had 27 different mines in four different geographical regions around the world. There is a lot of amplification potential there, right? You go fishing for ideas, as I had done with my manufacturing plant, and you find all of these great wins and you get to celebrate them and then start to uh, cross-pollinate those ideas. Um, Yeah, so that was one of the earliest projects I worked on. Among other things, I was sitting at the corporate office originally. Um, From there, I was deemed that I needed more operations experience and uh, I chose South America as my relocation. So I did a year in Peru supporting the the mines up in the mountains and learned how to do my job in Spanish. Mejora continua. So it was hands down the best thing I've ever done and uh, so rewarding from a personal and uh, practical standpoint. I really think that my world, my world got bigger when I did that. And, uh, and I, I still, to this day, really love facilitating in Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So the Gemba there was quite, I mean, ha- uh, halfway down around the world from, from downtown <laughs> Toronto. Um, Correct. Yeah. Wow. So that was quite, quite, quite an effort to go to Gemba. And if you're going to go be there for a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was, I was just so fortunate to be welcomed with open arms. I had you know, a lot of knowledge because I helped develop those standards in Toronto. And then I brought them into the regional office in Lima and got to help implement them. So I got to be my own, um, what did I say? Like my own, my own customer, my own stakeholder. Um, I've, I've read things about uh, engineers being sent into manufacturing plants to say, okay, you go ahead, you designed it now go ahead and put it together and how that can generate so many great um, ahas designing for manufacturing. Um, I had a similarly humbling experience with realizing, you know, just what everybody's going through to execute on these ideas that I'm, you know, I'm busy dreaming up from my comfy office yeah. <laughs> on the on the 33rd floor. Yeah. And then there's just just out of curiosity, was that mining upstream in the extended value stream of the powdered metal process at the auto supplier or different different metals altogether? It was a different metal. Uh, in that particular case. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it, I think it was a nice, uh, shout out, you know, back to my metallurgical roots. Uh, I didn't really work in the field per se. I, I did end up, uh, sort of leveraging a bit of what I knew. And, uh, yeah, I think being an engineer opens doors, having that six Sigma black belt, that credibility that, that really opens doors. And, um, having the opportunity to help other people, you know, and and being able to sincerely stand in front of people and say, look, this is the best thing I've ever done. This improvement stuff, you're going to love it. And even if you don't love it, it's going to be valuable for you. You can use these methods at home to organize your schedule and you can use them in your job to make yourself more consistent at whatever you're trying to do. And so that kind of personal value proposition, if you will, I always lead with that. I say, forget about what the company wants you to do. That's great if they want you to do this. And I, you know, I want you to do it too, but don't do it for me. Do it for yourself because there really is such an amazing opportunity for you to grow into this more effective version of yourself by using these principles. Yeah. Well, I think people tend to fall in love with these principles or tools or however we're going to describe it when there is benefit to them. And the work they're doing or benefit to them, you know, growing as an individual. I think that's when it seems like the spark tends to hit sort of back to, you know, you you telling your story about the problem solving with that belt. Like, I mean, like there's that sense of accomplishment and participation as opposed to times when, like you can just tell when people are being forced to implement lean methods and they're doing it because they're told to do it. I don't think that leads to the same sort of spark and passion and and that and it's like to me i think that's very understandable yeah. so from a, a change you know you you have this passion for engaging people and and helping them with change i'm i'm just curious to hear like what are the stories or, or reflections you have about connecting you know to to the purpose 
of the the people you're helping? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Start With Why came out, the Simon Sinek book, I went, yeah, (laughs) of course. I feel like that's kind of how I operate. And I kind of assumed everybody did too. It's sort of it sort of uh, bewildered me that he could write a book about it because I just thought that that's how everybody thought. Anyway, no shade to Simon Sinek. I think it's right. brilliant. And I do think, you know, when you were saying earlier about how people sometimes go through the motions and they just do the lean thing because they're being forced to, I would be very curious, you know, back to my thing about being a business mechanic, I would pop the hood on that resistance and say, well, what, why aren't they excited? Because I think this is where my bias kind of comes in handy. I'm like, this is cool. And if everyone is not thinking it's cool, then I need to know why. And I want to deal with what's going on there. Is it, are they afraid of losing their job? Are they feeling unheard, undervalued? Are they just sick of this problem because they think it's somebody else's fault and they actually just want someone else to go fix it? Whatever that is, if we, this is the ideal situation, right? Where we can work through all of that, get it out on the table. Um, there really is like a cathartic thing that happens. And then that's where the magic starts. That's where the good stuff that, well, you know, here's what I actually think, or here's what I actually know. Um, so I feel like I get to be a little bit of a therapist and a cheerleader at the same time when I'm getting to know people, I come in and I'm, you know, I, I hope that I'm a positive source of energy and uh, validation for people, whatever they're coming from, whatever they've been up to. And it just gets all that other stuff out of the way and lets us focus on, look, how are we going to get from here to here? We all share that purpose. Um, And if we're not sharing that purpose, then let's talk about that and let's get there first. Um, Because I think, yeah, the getting to that why, um, it's, it's at the heart of what we do at Engineers of Tomorrow as well. And, uh, you know, I, I guess talking about my own story, I can go back even further than the furnace belt, right, to me digging trenches in the driveway as a kid, you know, I got my rain boots on, and I'm taking the mud puddles and connecting them and stuff, and uh, fixing the rabbit ears uh, on my television, as I said, and getting into high school and seeing the periodic table and just being blown away by the fact that everything in the universe is right there. Um, and, and just having a genuine sense of wanting to help people like I was a girl guide, and I did a lot of, you know, volunteering and stuff. And, the dots all connect backwards. That's why I'm an engineer is because I'm someone who loves physical, technical problems. I love solving things. I love helping people. And I'm fascinated by what stuff is made up of. Maybe that's why I chose materials and metallurgical. And so what I just did there was got into a little bit of my why as an engineer and to the rank and file population that may or may not even know what engineering is, that can be very illuminating to say, well, oh, that's an engineer. Okay. We may have some stereotypes, you know, Dilbert or, um, I don't know, Big Bang Theory. Mm -hmm. We we have these very few cultural symbols that represent engineering at all, let alone in a a positive Uh, or kind of um, innovative or, or, or progressive sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, there's no equivalent of um, like a show like CSI that led to this flood of people thinking forensic science, criminal forensics, that became cool, that became exciting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm well, you know what the problem is? It's because when we do our jobs right, there's no drama. Right, right. The thing just doesn't fall down. The bridge stays up. The building doesn't explode. Mm. The, you know, it. Yeah. I, I think that this is a little bit of a, um, it can be maybe a little bit of a, a conundrum, although maybe continuous improvement is the answer, right? Maybe we need to uh, start getting a little more high profile in the media with the way that we uh, we gamify doing things better, problem solving. There's there, I mean, there's there's shows that that talk about the problems. Uh, cable shows on you know engineering disasters mm. is more common of a theme than engineering successes. I mean. I think, I mean, there are times like people glorify invention yeah, more than, let's say, engineering. So maybe, I don't know, we'll have to see how to crack that. I mean, I, I heard a news story this morning. It's the 30th anniversary of the release of Jurassic Park. And mm. the popularity of that film led to a big increase in people going to study uh, to become paleontologists. 
and they actually interviewed somebody who was like a I'm getting off track here, but how do we create this in engineering and manufacturing even? Nine-year-old kid blown away by Jurassic Park became a paleontologist and ended up being an advisor to one of the many, many sequels that was still, you know, coming out 25. No. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's the coolest. Yeah, so. I love that. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a corresponding uh, anecdote there and it's not off track at all. It's, it's beautiful. Um, I have met engineering students that were in some of the early National Engineering Month events that I helped organize. Mm. So, okay. you know, dating Good. back to 20, I guess 2013, right after I decided to go out on my own as a, as a, a problem solver, as an engineer, um, frankly, things were going a little bit well at the beginning and I got a little bit confident and decided I could do something else at the same time. And uh, when I was approached by Engineers Without Borders Canada, had the opportunity to start leading their outreach that was basically saying to kids, look, engineering can be about being a humanitarian. It can be about helping people. And of course, this dovetailed beautifully with what I had discovered in the meantime. And uh, I think the fact that I was a woman helped, you know, that I was speaking to girls and, and children of all genders, frankly, can, can hear this message and understand that there's a place for them. And uh, what started as a single contract running National Engineering Month events in um, in Ontario in March um, has now blossomed into a national engineering charity. Um, I'm going to forget the numbers, but we're in, I think, 10 provinces and we have um, over 400 volunteers active in many different uh, programs, going to classrooms, going to Girl guide and Boy Scout meetings, going to church basements, going to wherever the kids are hanging out to give them a positive experience of engineering that helps them see, oh, okay, so maybe it's it's not what I thought. It's 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 a it's team based. It's uh, creative. It's um, something that allows me to make a contribution to the world. And uh, yeah, pretty hard to beat the thrill of knowing that your influence or a program that you helped create or helped run actually shifted someone's life for the better um, and maybe led inspired uh, their career choice. Mm -hmm. So there, I want to come back and talk about you know, some of the nonprofit organizations and, and, and causes that you're involved in helping, helping people. Um, I want to hear first a little bit about the journey of starting your own business of like what, what was the spark to go out? Like it's, it's a leap to leave corporate life behind. I've made the leap. A lot of people listening I'm sure have made the leap and there, there, there might be many more who would like to. So yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what gave you, you know, it, it takes courage, right? So what, 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 yeah. led, what led to that? No, thanks for that reminder. I mean, picking up my life and moving to South America was a good warm up because once you've already done that, um, things kind of fall. I think some, some of the fear falls away. Some of the need to stay in one place falls away because I've already moved metaphorically and physically. And, uh, I found myself, you know, I, they replaced me when I went to South America and then I came back, went on contract for a bit. And, um, there was nothing really calling me to stay at that time. And so I decided, well, look, I, I know I have a lot of skills. There's a lot of value I can help create here. Um, they're not paying me $180 million. So clearly there's an ROI to having me on their team. Maybe I can do it in a way that allows me to have some flexibility and some self-determination. And long story short, I took my severance package and spent it all over uh, South America, the Caribbean, uh, and Europe. Started out with just like a, a quick three months and it turned into um, a, a volunteer project. And it was in Argentina. I was working with people that were scavenging plastic in order to survive and basically just selling it. Uh, so very minimal value, quite a lot of poverty. Um, and there were, as you might know, as your reader, your listeners might know, uh, in 2001, the economy of Argentina had a complete meltdown and there were hundreds of thousands out of work overnight. So out of necessity, they organized themselves into these groups. They were scavenging for um, cardboard, plastic, uh, cans, bottles things that they could sell. And we saw an opportunity, I'll say uh, we, meaning Waste for Life, the organization that I joined up with, which was started by uh, an engineering professor and role model of mine, uh, Dr. Caroline Bailey. So she had spoken at a conference that I had seen when I was a little 
baby engineering grad. And she said, risk being alive, you know, risk putting your values with what you with what you've learned in school. And she had founded this project while she was on sabbatical in Argentina and also started a network called the Engineers for Social Justice and Peace. So Waste for Life has, uh, let me see if I can get this right. They, Waste for Life develops poverty reducing solutions to ecological problems. And what that meant basically was we were adding a little bit of value to those plastics by fusing them together with a very rudimentary hot press. Um, so plastic and uh, other materials, including fabric or cardboard, uh, to make things that people could sell or turn into other things. So anyway, uh, you can check out Waste for Life. We can put the link in the show notes. It's still going on. The work to this day is still happening. They've branched out into Argentina and Sri Lanka, um, among uh, and uh, Lesotho in Africa. It's amazing to see how this same idea um, developed at my alma mater, Queens, was just able to scale so beautifully and, and again, really uh, allow engineering to, to branch out and have that direct uh, community impact. So it gave me a little taste of international development and uh, entrepreneurship and, and just seeing people really uh, struggling with very small margins and very little, very little dignity, frankly, and how we were able to add some value to them and, and give them the opportunity to then sell these little wallets that they made in the swanky boutiques in Buenos Aires. And they got a contract to create some, um, some garbage cans to go in the local park, poetically enough, um, made out of upcycled plastic. So uh, I know, so cool, right? So this is what I was doing and I got the aha. I remember I was on the train in Argentina when I got the aha, like I've basically spent my career thus far honing my skill set and improving processes. Maybe I don't need to just toil inside the corporate machine making these incremental improvements. Maybe I can direct this toolkit towards something that really resonates with my values and my desire to have an impact in the world. Um, and I'll say, you know, in the name of fairness, I think you can have an impact in the world being inside a big company as well. I think that's very valuable. And um, there is maybe a little bit of black and white thinking that I was in my younger self was engaging in. However, it did lead me to take that leap of faith and move to Argentina. Um, and I happened to meet the man who is now my husband while I was working there. So that was a pretty cool perk as well. And uh, I, I remember calling home and telling my parents, you know, you, I can't even believe what I'm doing. It's so cool. You can't even believe it. I mean, I've never felt more alive and the ways that my skills can play out. And um, I think that was once I had that feeling of knowing that I was making a difference and I was being a, a part of these really cool, innovative um, ways of being in the world and, and really helping people that's when I knew I want to keep doing projects like this for the rest of my life. And I probably need to do it on my own. So it was a bit of a, uh, an operation of necessity to start my own business at that point. And, uh, you know, I started small and got a few things under my belt. I just celebrate, I'm, I will be celebrating 12 years in business this coming August. And I think what I'm most excited for in this next chapter is to start to get a lot more specific on here's here's what I do. Um, I've I've spent the last twelve years um, entertaining a lot of different interesting possibilities, and that's been a lot of fun. And I think now at this point in my career, I'm really excited to get very specific on uh, kaizen events. That's really you know that emerged from my reflections as like that's the sweet stuff right there when I can watch the needle move in three to five days on a big sticky problem that people have been fighting with for a while. Um, I also really love training and then seeing the results of training. So lean tools, all these things that I've been doing for, uh, you know, a couple of decades now, um, really helping people say, okay, well, what is the root cause? No, no, really what's the root cause and what is that costing us? And why does this matter? And how can we test this out? Um, I'm such a fan of lean startup as well. I think it can be integrated in so many places. Anytime you have uncertainty and you need to move forward in the face of uncertainty, throw some lean startup, you know, yeah. some uh, build, measure, learn cycles on it. So, uh, so I'm hoping to get really a lot more specialized in the coming 
the coming months, coming years. Uh, I do have a, a few more decades left in my career. And, and this is really, this is really exactly my sweet spot. It's right what I want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, some of the most interesting speakers at the lean startup conferences are people doing like basically social entrepreneurship and yeah. applying those same lean startup principles to, um, you know, uh, iterating and understanding, you know, let's say instead of product market fit, it might be, you know, looking for that fit between the services you think you can or should be providing and the need of the people. Um, and, 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 and how do you, how do you learn? How do you decide? Do you pivot or persevere? Like I've had a couple of guests on the, my favorite mistake podcast who told, you know, kind of social, entrepreneurship pivot stories of like getting really deep down a path um, of, of building a solution and then realizing, oh my goodness, there was a really bad assumption baked into, like there was one woman who was developing a school in a country. And just to summarize the stories real quick, um, and people kept telling her, like, don't build something. I forget what country it was, but, you know, it was a country with, um, you know, warlords and some you know lawlessness mm -hmm. and they told her don't build something too nice and she built something nice to western standards and it got seized by a military group Oof. and so that was yeah bad you know uh and and she you know to hear that story of okay well gosh learning from that and pivoting and you know the other story was being in a different country of trying to provide meals to young girls and an assumption about what constituted a meal, you know, kind of thinking of like hot mm -hmm. meal, Western standards, even if it was local food. And, you know, basically there were um, you know, like families were taking the meals intended for the girls and giving them to the boys in the family. And, mm -hmm. and so like, boy, this kind of took a, a detour again, but like trying to get past some of those assumptions and pivoting and, and providing basically like meal shakes that the girls could sort of just keep to themselves for consume on the go and not have their family take the food. So it's like th things we wouldn't imagine coming in from an outside perspective, but even, you know, as entrepreneurs in business, sometimes you're kind of flabbergasted by, I didn't know my customer would do that with this product, even if it's not as sad, sorry, that took a sad turn, but yeah, I mean, but trying no, to work on sure. I mean, I, I like think it, is... it comes to a reality that we need to design for the conditions where we want our solutions to work. And we can have all these ideas about what we hope it is. At the end of it, though, we have to design it for what it really is. And that, yeah, it can be heartbreaking, right? We're, we're allowed to have emotions about what we see and what we, what we wish we could see instead. And I think what the the best thing we can do is is learn and adapt, like you said, learn from those assumptions that we didn't realize we made, yeah. and and keep moving forward. And you know maybe there are systemic solutions to get at at eventually. You know in the in the longer term, I know that helps me sleep a little better at night sometimes. So instead of saying, "Well, I'm just adapting, accepting situations as they are," maybe I'm also supporting a group that's got some maybe some some policy solutions or some overriding um other initiatives going on designed to to shift that underlying reality. Yeah. So I want to ask you about you know two of the organizations you're involved in. Um uh, first off Artemis Project and and how that helps women in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So the Artemis Project is a collective of about 90 female entrepreneurs serving the mining industry. So I'll say that again, female entrepreneurs serving the mining industry. I know we're not supposed to exist, but we do. And there are a lot of us, we get together, we talk about, you know, positioning our services, the impact we want to have. Every single one of those women is outstanding at what they do. And they're all doing something to move the needle, so to speak, I guess I say that a lot, um, change, we say change the face of mining, right? It's a bit of a play on words. Um, but but basically, they're looking at innovation. They're Sometimes they're looking at uh, climate resiliency, energy efficiency, uh, local community relations. Um, they offer all different suites of solutions. I myself have been an Artemis member. My, my lean business improvement um, skill set is bundled in there. 
in the collective. And we really want to partner with mining companies that are interested in improving their gender representation, as most mining companies are these days. Um, their employee population and their leadership and their boards, rightly so, are usually the main focus of that gender diversity effort. And Artemis Project is looking to influence them to also look at their supply chain because mileage varies across the board. However, most um, mining companies are somewhere between 8 to 15% women so far. And supply chain is less than 1%, meaning the vendors and contractors that they employ. So if we can up that even a little bit and give those um, these very deserving women entrepreneurs a chance, um, it's just about leveling the playing field, giving them an opportunity to speak to those decision makers about their solutions and everything that's happened since then. Um, you know, Artemis has been going for about four years now. Um, everything that happens from there is really on the backs of the, the quality of the solutions of, of our members, which is just I, I cannot say enough about the impact that they're having across the board, all these different areas uh, designed to help mining evolve into the next, um, basically the next frontier. You know, they're the uh, meeting the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, looking at other types of, of innovation um, mm. through this gender responsive procurement opportunity. Mm. Wow. And, and tell us um, about Engineers of Tomorrow. That's going kind of back to younger ages, influencing yeah. the, the, the potential future, not just future engineers, but also they could be potential entrepreneurs. Could be entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, we say that we're not necessarily looking to recruit engineers. We want every kid to know what engineering is because those are going to grow up to be the decision makers, um, you know, the leaders of companies, the, the politicians of tomorrow. And we want them to have respect for evidence-based decision making and, and listen to the engineers of tomorrow, right? So it really is about raising that technical uh, literacy and familiarity across the board. And that starts with being deliberately positive and inclusive now and not looking at certain kids and saying, well, you're not smart enough to do this or you're not good at math, which is it's it's really sad, right, to see how quickly kids can get turned off from thinking that they have that kind of brain. So I am deliberately and um, stubbornly very inclusive and positive in all my dealings. I have three daughters myself and, you know, I, I'm very careful about the messages. And as I think everybody needs to be when dealing with young people, um, being very open, encouraging their curiosity, leading with your story as a human and what makes you tick. You know, I think I've, I've been weaving it into this conversation uh, fairly effectively. I don't know if I know how to turn it off, actually. Um, right. But rather than getting up in front of a class and saying, well, I assist with the optimization of processes in order to realize efficiencies, right? <laughs> Kids are going to fall asleep. Sure. So you need to really bring it to them, bring it with some storytelling that's connected to something that they know and give them the chance to feel encouraged and feel successful in it. So there's almost always a hands-on component to this. And yeah, I guess the, the story of engineers of tomorrow, I, I kind of told it earlier, it was part of my, uh, my th big think about what I wanted to be when I grew up and it evolved into this, uh, this charity that's now, you know, it's, it's grown nationally, we've got hundreds of volunteers. Um, our annual report just came out, maybe I can give you the link to that in our show notes as well, if people want to learn a little bit more about it. Um, we think, you know, those those positive experiences, you know, maybe for childhood in general, but especially when it comes to engineering or STEM, they're like pearls on a string, you know, you just want to put as many of them together as possible to lead them to see like, wow, this is something that that can be for me, or that I at least I understand, and I'm not intimidated by it. And I'm um, willing to willing to try it on and think about it and acknowledge it as a as a force in my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, you know, for sharing. I mean, I, it's uh, I'm impressed how you're drawn, you know, to these, you know, these these big challenges and um, nonprofit organizations and 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 you know these these um, big big problems, you know, or big opportunities for societal benefit. So, you know, I, well, thank you for that. I I have to say that I I feel like I just won the lottery in terms of the volunteers we've been able to find. 
Um, I, I'm actually looking for a social scientist who wants to partner with us to study what happens with our volunteers because it's probably 10,000 people and counting over the, the decade that we've been doing this. They come to us and they want to tell their stories. And these are anyone from a recent grad to uh, been retired for 10 years, uh, veteran. They know who they are. They, these are our bread and butter volunteers um, that just come around and they're so passionate about telling the next generation, this is what I love about what I do. And this is why you should think about it. And, you know, we coach them, we give them, uh, we have a library of lesson plans, we give them uh, coaching on, you know, the storytelling part of it, and we give them connections, of course, to the the teachers and the um, community leaders that they're going to be collaborating with to go meet the kids. Um, and the rest is, it's their stories, it's their energy, and it's just the, the most contagious thing um, to have them, you know, knowing that they're that they're part of something bigger here. They're potentially changing, changing someone's life through their story and their example. Um, I think that's a, it's a very, it's a very satisfying thing to do and we're not paying them. So they're coming back because they're getting a different type of reward out of it. There's a, a very positive non-monetary thing that's happening there. Something to do yeah. with their identity. I think that's, that yeah. just feels really good. So I, uh, yeah, I, I think we're, we're having an impact and we're doing it together. And that is, you know, sort of the, the dream as far as uh, you start something and you hope it leads somewhere. Most things that get started, you know, don't lead anywhere, but this, I'm, I'm very fortunate to say, like, I call this one, my first child. I started it in 2013 and then I had my kids after that. And um, it's, it's alive and kicking, it's thriving, exciting to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. Well, um, before we wrap up again, our guest is uh, Erica Lee Garcia. Um, Erica, one other question about your business. Um, what, what sorts of organizations do you tend to work with? Or, yeah, or absolutely. So I'm most familiar with manufacturing and mining uh, because that's where I work. That's where I grew up. And I find, you know, my specific knowledge for those industries, even understanding the talk on the shop floor, the the differing ways that people can react um, in in the mind site, um, that that really helps me connect with people and and kind of get conversation flowing, get things going on the change efforts. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, definitely manufacturing, mining companies, certainly engineering organizations, service based organizations as well. I've been known to partner with to help them, um, and if they want to get in touch with me to discuss how I can help them, either with a you know efficiency, cost savings, value creation, or other types of uh, change strategy. Be happy to have that conversation. Well, great. And I'll make sure there are links in the show notes for people who want to reach out and uh, and contact you, Erica. And then uh, one final thing I know you were going to offer, um, we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well, um, kind of a, a giveaway offer um, if you want to tell people about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, it was in the before time. So let's just say four or five years ago, um, I was invited to give a talk to the engineers at the Ministry of Transportation here in Ontario. And they had just undergone a massive reorganization and everybody was a little bit disoriented. And they said, like, tell us what we need to know for navigating change. And I was like, okay, just let me sum up 20 years in, in a 45 minute talk. I'll get right on that. Um, but anyway, I sat down and I put some thoughts together for them. And the result was something I call a, a navigating change roadmap. And it basically involved pulling together the best of what I know, both from a personal and organizational perspective. And I would love to share that with your listeners and, and hear what they think and, and get their take on what sorts of changes they're navigating. So this would be great for anyone navigating change within an organization or in their personal lives, maybe something like um, getting laid off or looking for a new job or changing um, from one relationship or one town to another. Um, all of these changes, basically, they act the same and they're predictable. So even if they're challenging, um, there are tools and there are ways that the uh, the tools of our profession can be used to help people navigate them more successfully and come out on the other side thriving. So would love it if people wanted to check that out and let me know what they think. Okay, well, good. I hope people will. I'm going to go check that out. Um, we're all navigating change professionally, personally, all of the above. So thank you, Erica, for, for offering that and for sharing that uh, with everybody. So again, we've been joined by Erica Lee Garcia. Thank you for telling us you know, your story, not just 
the passion for problem solving, but the passion for, um, as, as you put it so well, making the world a better place. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that all with us today. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.